Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Mark Zitter, and I'm pleased to be the moderator for today's program with Dr. Deborah Burks. I'm a proud member of the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club and also the founder and chair of the Zetima Project, which is a collaborative of top U.S. healthcare policy and business leaders. You know, it's hard to believe that it was more than two years ago in mid-March of 2020, which was just days after the Bay Area led the country in issuing shelter at home orders, that I moderated the club's very first program on the COVID-19 pandemic, probably had 100 since then. And at that time, we were just learning about the virus, about flattening the curve and what that meant, uh, which mitigation strategies were most effective and so forth. But since then, unfortunately, we've had more than 1 million Americans who've died from the virus. At this point, it seems like the country is moving into uh, a, a new phase of the pandemic with infection levels dropping and vaccines and treatments readily available. And frankly, people just getting tired of following public health restrictions for better or for worse. But we know we still have a lot more to learn from how we handled this pandemic so far that can help us end it and also prevent the next one. And that's what we'll be talking about today with our guest, Dr. Deborah Burks, who played a key role in the Trump administration's effort to combat COVID-19. She's the former White House Coronavirus Response Task Force Coordinator, and, and that job was at the center of several high-profile activities and controversies. She has a new book out, Silent Invasion, The Untold Story of the Trump Administration, COVID-19, and Preventing the Next Pandemic Before It's Too Late. And that book discusses her experience as a seasoned diplomat, physician, and administrator facing the greatest public health crisis in a generation with uh, what am I call an unpredictable president. I'm looking forward to discussing that book with her today. This program obviously is virtual, but you should know that the Commonwealth Club is returning to more in-person programs at our beautiful San Francisco headquarters. I hope you will be able to get to some of them. And you can learn more about the upcoming programs at the club's web website, which is www.commonwealthclub.org. So one quick note just before we jump into today's program, and that's if you have a question for Dr. Burks, please put it in the YouTube chat box. The questions will be forwarded to me during the program. I will get to as many of them as possible. So on today's program, welcome Dr. Deborah Burks. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Great to have you. Now, uh, just to set the stage, you joined the White House Coronavirus Response Team at the beginning of March 2020, after, right. I should say, initially turning down several invitations from Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger, who's a friend of yours. And so on the very second day on your job, you had your first meeting with President Trump in a uh, crowded private dining room. Why don't you tell us what you, message you were trying to get across to him and how did that go? Well, I came with my list of action items, which is the reason why um, I agreed to finally to come back. Um, I could see the tsunami wave coming. Um, I had been preparing Africa for that wave since the end of January. I felt that the country was ill-prepared to tackle what was going to happen in the next few weeks. And so I came back with my list of things we had to finish that had to do that first week. Um, my number one piece um, was changing the communication to the American people because we had to get people moving away from the flu and thinking about this like the flu, thinking about it as risk was low because it was clear that there were some Americans that were extraordinarily high risk. 
And I just felt like we had to change the messaging. So in that first meeting, I was pushing to change the messaging and, and told the president that this was not like the flu. And how did that go? How did you take it? Well, you know, this dining room is very tiny. There's people rimmed around the room. There's a TV with four quadrants covering major cable networks on the, and the president is looking at papers, calling people on the telephone and looking at the TV. So I had about 30 seconds. So I knew that I just wanted to hit that tone about we had to change the messaging and this was not the flu. And it there were Americans that were extraordinarily high risk, not low risk. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you got through to him with that? You know, he said to me that, you know, that's not what his advisors had been telling him. That's not what they've been saying. They were telling him that they could contain the virus. Um, and I just, and then I was basically excused from the room. So uh -huh. um, we went into a meeting then very shortly afterwards with the therapeutic and vaccine private sector. And we just started rolling that week and, and just kept moving because that's, you know, when you're in crisis, you have to stay focused on the priorities and make sure those things get done. Yeah, well, it was clear from reading your book that your priority was trying to make something work to combat the virus. And you're not a political person in that regard, although you seem to be politically astute, um, but you're operating within a very polarized environment. And it's interesting, one of the fun things about your book is there's a lot of people who, whose names we all know. You have plenty of criticisms of individuals inside and outside of the Trump administration, but also a lot of praise and who earned your um, admiration versus condemnation was sometimes surprising to me. I think listeners will be interested in hearing about that too. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna give you a series of names of the key actors you write about. And for each one, I'd like you to say just one word or short phrase that comes to mind regarding how helpful they were in the pandemic related efforts, okay? So we'll do this great. quickly because there's so many great people, but we don't have time to talk about them all, but just your overall impression real quick. So let's start with President Trump, a word that comes to mind about. Helpful in March and April, not helpful after. Right. How about Vice President Pence? Always helpful. Dr. Anthony Fauci? Always an ally. Great. How about CDC Director Robert Redfield? Always a colleague. Right. FDA Commissioner Steve Hahn? Always a colleague and very funny. Okay. <laughs> How about the Senior Presidential Advisor, Jared Kushner? He was incredibly helpful. Right. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Very thoughtful, very helpful. How about the White House Director of Speechwriting, Steve Miller? Not helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, the Coronavirus Task Force member, Scott Atlas. Not helpful. Okay. How about the uh, Administrator of Medicare and Medicaid, Seema Verma? Unbelievably thoughtful and helpful. Mm -hmm. The Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar. Helpful at times, um, difficult at others. Okay. How about the President's Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows? Helpful in a couple instances, I would say overall, a COVID um, denier. Okay. And how about the Vice President's Chief of Staff, Mark Short? really underestimated the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, last one I'll say is the senior counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway. Helpful at times. Um, she was very focused on schools and churches. I think she had the schools right. Um, probably not the churches, just due to the age range. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, thanks. It's quite a variety of, of experiences with people who were all sort of in mostly in the same place politically. That's interesting. Now, you write about how during your very first week on the job, which of course was already two months into the pandemic, uh, you met with uh, CDC's Bob Redfield and he gave you a summary of where things stood. But you were quite surprised by the inadequacy of the information. What did you see and what was missing from the information you had? Well, um, it was simply a Z uh, Excel spreadsheet of every state, number of cases, um, whether they were going up or not, nothing about test positivity, nothing about hospitalizations, nothing about um, dynamics and rate of rise, um, and none of it um, disaggregated by age, sex, race, ethnicity um, in any way. Mm -hmm. And what were you expecting? Well, I, okay, so for 20 years, I've been working in Sub-Saharan Africa on a program to, that started out as saving people's lives of HIV and HIV TB and also malaria called PEPFAR. Um, and we had spent the last seven years focused on creating a comprehensive database so we could see every single client at all times where they were whether they were being served, we GPSed all of our sites so we knew precisely how far people had to walk from villages to get to the site. We could see both outcomes and impact of our programming. We could see gaps. We understood who we were missing, not just who came. Um, it was very population-based and using that detailed data by age and sex and location in this granular way, we were able not only to save lives, but change the very course of the HIV pandemic. And I come back to the United States that has none of those things and had not spent the last 20 years building that capacity. So Africa was way ahead of us and we were facing this, wow. Now, early on, uh, the U.S. was focused on containing the virus. Let's just not get it. Let's keep it away instead of aggressively mitigating it. And that was our long-established plan that was based on tracking symptoms. And, of course, with COVID, we realized that eventually that was just the wrong approach because COVID, the virus could be spread by asymptomatic or presymptomatic individuals, which I gather is why you named your book Silent Invasion. So Correct. where did our public health, which is apparatus, which is so sophisticated, how did we get that so wrong? Well, the um, public health system, which transcends any specific party for the last two decades, had been focused on building a syndromic surveillance system, syndromic, based on symptoms, not based on laboratory diagnosis. So again, for the last two decades, I'm ensuring that every child and every adult that comes to our clinics, no matter if you're at the end of the farthest road in sub-Saharan Africa or in a metropolitan area, that we diagnose your TB or HIV or your malaria immediately so that you get appropriate treatment. I come back to a country who's managing flu pan the flu seasonal flu by symptoms and that's why there's a range we have no idea how many people actually get the flu or hospitalized with the flu or die of the flu um, because we don't collect the data so it was shocking to me to have the level of technology that we have in this country the level of technology that i was able to take to sub-saharan africa and not utilize it here and so mm -hmm. You now you know precisely why I came back. Um, they were not picking up on the data that made it clear that this virus lingered in the air, 
was aerosolized and was asymptomatic. And that was the majority of the spread, not the minority of the spread. And I can tell you, even through the summer of 2020, senior CDC, non-political officials like myself were telling me that less than 5% of the spread was by asymptomatic individuals. And why was it so hard to persuade them of that? Because the system they had built depended on symptoms. And so they wanted to fit this virus into what they had created. And rather than saying, and I come out of the military and you're trained all the time. Yes, there's a plan. But if that plan doesn't work, you're all taught to modify the plan immediately to save lives. And that they got locked into, they spent more time defending the system that they created than developing a system that would have been functional. Yeah, it was fascinating to me that you write a lot about some of the denial for political reasons by a lot of the Trump political operatives. But there's a similar denial, or at least a parallel denial, by scientists for completely different reasons. For completely different reasons. You're absolutely correct. And the more I pushed them, the further they dug in. Um, and that made it so difficult because normally, I mean, I'm used to working with presidents and prime ministers and ministries of health and getting people through using data onto the same sheet of music. Yeah. And because it was different times, it, it took a month or two or three or even a year, I was willing to work through that systematically. But we had hours to days. And so, you know, you have to be much more direct and much more, here is the data, let's utilize the information to save American lives. Yeah, you would think that would have been easier with scientists than, than it turned out to be. Um, uh, your, your journey through this whole experience is, is the fascinating part of the book. And, and in April of 2020, uh, you were meeting with FD uh, Chief Steve Hahn, and he asked you how things were going. And you said, quote, we'll be lucky if we survive this, unquote. What did you mean by that at that point? Well, you know, he was, and I think all of us were pleasantly surprised about how far we had moved the, the federal government, the Trump administration, and the president himself through the the European travel ban, the 15 days to slow the spread, the 30 days to slow the spread. And I, and I think he felt like we had momentum. And I knew, um, and I said in the book, I knew, I knew when I took the position that I would be summarily and he would be, and so would Bob Redfield, summarily hated by both the right and the left because the left would hate us because we went into a Trump White House to try to save American lives and the right would hate us because we were going to have to at times contradict the president in what we had to say. And it was, I, I knew that was coming. I knew it was, I went into this open-eyed. I just want to make it clear. I, I knew that this was going to be very difficult for me personally and probably for them also. But, you know, that in the what I, I would do it again because it was needed. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking about contradicting the president, well, I think one of the most painful experiences must have been on the April 23rd, 2020, when you were on stage with President Trump at a press conference and he famously remarked, made a remark about uh, light and disinfectant that could be treatments for COVID-19. And I think, you know, famously, your, your, your face uh, uh, reflected your, let's say, intense dismay at those comments. Uh, what do you think the impact ultimately was of Trump's comments? And do you wish that you had done anything differently at that point? 
Yeah, in my mind, and again, he wasn't speaking to me, so he was turned about 180 degrees from me. Um, I couldn't even make eye contact with him because he was talking to the the basic scientists who had done the study for us, who had done this study. We wanted this study done because I wanted playgrounds open. I wanted children to be able to play outside. It was already April, and I knew if parents could see the data that the sunlight itself produces these kind of oxidative molecules that react that react with the virus and kill it much like disinfectant in almost the same same time frame that we could get mayors and county commissioners to reopen their playground um so that was the whole point and that was the whole point of him coming to the press conference. I had no idea he had gone to the Oval Office and said all of this to the president. And then they started this dialogue about it being a potential treatment, which they then continued in front of the country. And in my mind, I'm playing out how this is going to unravel because I knew how this would be portrayed. Um, I knew it would unravel um, the credibility of the task force, certainly all the progress we had made in getting the nation to take this seriously, that um, in that moment, we would lose the critical momentum that we needed to get ready for what I was very concerned about, a very difficult fall and winter that would be coming and I wanted us really focused and then this happened. And, you know, I was in an ABC interview and she made an interesting point. She's like, I I understand why you didn't get up and go on the stage because that's not in my personality, but Hmm. she made an interesting point about getting up because I could make eye contact, could get up and get between them and stay in that moment, not a treatment. And I, you know, I, I tried to only make mistakes once. I didn't make that mistake again and learn from it. But I think in that moment, that was very good advice. And I think a good advice to all of us. Um, as a military officer, you were taught to go to your commanding officer in private. Mm-hmm. But that was such a critical moment, getting in between the two of them and interrupting that dialogue earlier, um, I think could have salvaged some of our momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're put in some pretty difficult situations throughout this pandemic, obviously. And one of them, even some personally, you know, there's so many people who distrust science who reacted negatively to any attempts to combat the virus. You write about that you and, and even your daughters actually received death threats and warnings of attacks, some of them sexual. How, how seriously did you regard those and what did you do about them? Well, they were quite serious um, and and quite frightening um, what these people, and I don't really know how I got my phone, how I got my address. It's it's very scary when people start texting your phone um, and then sending letters to your your personal address. And so that was an unusual situation for me. I had gotten threats like that overseas um, and stuff slid under my hotel room door, but never to my personal phone. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, my admin immediately immediately notified the State Department, but the State Department um, wanted to, I mean, it's very interesting dichotomy. Domestically, HHS took them seriously, and Tony had um, um, support and and a security detail. Um, Very similar death threats, very similar um, 
writings to my household, but the State Department took a very different, um, because I think they're mostly a global organization. So, you know, they're not really used to looking at this domestically. And so they told me to keep collecting them. And it was so horrible for my daughter. I was just like, don't open them, put them in a box. We're just going to ignore them and move on because I just didn't spend my effort on that. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, you got some Secret Service protection. No, that never did. No, <laughs> no, what someone did help me and I don't know who it is and who it was. And this is the great thing about the everyday workers in the White House who were just, I mean, the uniform secret service are amazing individuals. Someone called Verizon and got my phone locked. Mm-hmm. And so from that point on, I stopped getting text messages. Um, I did get a lot of the mail, but I stopped getting the text messages. And that was, that was important because you can't give up looking at your phone, but you yeah, can yeah. open the mail. Well, sorry I had to go through that. It's a shame that it's that hard to serve the country. Um, you know, you when you came aboard, you realized that nobody was talking very systematically to the states. So you took it on, upon yourself to reach out to them and you visited, you report 44 of them during your tenure. So why did you reach out to the states, given this is a federal uh, uh, you know, uh, initiative, and what did you learn from your visits? You know, really critical, because that's what I learned in working internationally. Um, you make progress. Yes, you need policy at the highest national level, but then you have to ensure that it's being implemented and executed. Um, policies made at the federal level that are never implemented at the local level because of barriers to implementation aren't valuable. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you've said something, but if it's not, if there's no action taken and it can't be done, that's not helpful guidance. And so I wanted to really get out there and frankly, listen and learn from the States because I've learned that also working globally, the more you listen to communities that are really living through these issues, the more you get to know about what they need. I mean, it was very interesting listening to um, the school board of in Virginia when I went to visit Richmond and one of the older black women said, you know, you don't understand are the care providers to many of the children of the school after school are the grandparents who are at extraordinary risk. And so you have to figure out if you're going to put children back in school, you've got to figure out alternative um, childcare options because they can't be exposing their grandparents before we had a vaccine or treatments. And so, you know, in Missouri, a woman, the president of Lincoln University said, you know, I hear you talking about testing and how important it is, but we're a small, historically black college and university and we can't get the test. Well, the next day, I called up our testing czar, Brett Girard, and they had tests and every HBCU then had tests. So really understanding what the community needs are and meeting them immediately, that's how you build trust. You don't mm-hmm. build trust by sitting in Washington or Atlanta and putting out guidance that without the information that supports that guidance. Yeah, but you had some great examples in your book of, of small things you learn that you would never know without visiting. Yeah. Um, of all the people you mentioned in your book, the one you probably clashed the most with was the Stanford physician and, and task force member, Scott Atlas. So I want to ask you, what was your problem with Dr. Atlas? And I think your answer may um, uh, may correspond with a question that we got from the audience about Sweden's approach. So if you want to tie those together, great if it's for you. 
Yeah, two things. I mean, the difference between us and the Sweden approach is they made all the data available to um, the Swedish residents. And so the residents knew when there was virus there and when they were in a law. And so what you didn't see is a lot of mitigation that families took because they were given the information and the tools to mitigate. So it's not like Sweden did not mitigate. Um, they they moved mitigation down to the actual Swedish residents, but they formed them and they gave them the data and the information and the tools for them to be successful. So my, my biggest argument with um, Dr. Scott Atlas was I spent hours with him going over the data and what I was seeing in the data and the reason I was making these recommendations to states and local officials and calling them and, and showing up on their doorstep and sending out a weekly report to them, to all of the state officials. Um, and I went through every piece of data that I had and, and what, what I was seeing and he didn't disagree with any of that in the moment, but I wrote a daily analysis of the pandemic. And what I found out he was doing is doing reply all and taking my name off and sending a point by point um, analysis. Now, if you're an academic and I have no problem with that and I have no problem with dialogue and I can hold my own in a dialogue and I believe I had data on my side, but don't hide from the data. Don't, don't, don't have a debate and then remove the person you're having the debate with so right. you can make your point. And I think what worried me the most about Dr. Atlas was he provided a way for the White House before the most deadly surge that I knew was coming to distract them to say, I believe this, she believes that. And that allowed every person in the White House to say that wanted to say, you see, none of these doctors know what's right. We mm -hmm. have two 180 degree difference of opinion. And so we don't have to follow either of them. So, you know, that's the danger of that. Um, and that's really, you know, that's why to me, he was a bit of a false prophet and then not willing to really put up his data that supported his position, which I would have been happy to review with him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not like he was a, a, a pretty explicit fan of herd immunity, just um, getting to that point. And you're not. So why don't you talk about that distinction a bit? Well, because I could see early, okay, so herd immunity, what it requires is what we call with natural infection, long-term protection against both infection and disease. So for those of you who are, a little bit older, um, maybe over 50, and you got either measles, mumps, or rubella, you know if you were infected with those at childhood, you were protected against most of those viral diseases for a very long period of time. And so the vaccines were made to mimic natural infection. And so the vaccines protected against infection and against um, disease. And then you can develop herd immunity. But if you have natural infection that doesn't produce long-term immunity against infection, then you can't develop herd immunity. And so at that time, with the data I was seeing um, with these surges in South Africa, even by the fall, I was beginning to believe that natural infection did not lead, lead to lifelong protection from reinfection. Mm -hmm. And once you can get reinfection and continual um, 
continual immune escape and immune modification of the driven of the virus, then you're not going to get herd immunity. So, and that's what I really worried about how the vaccines were rolled out. I really believe that we only knew if those vaccines protected against severe disease and hospitalization. We didn't study silent infection. People were not tested without symptoms on those trials. We, I don't know how it got translated that these vaccines would protect people from infection. It was wrong then. It is wrong now. We could, it's potential that you can make a vaccine better than natural mm -hmm. infection, but it's very hard to do. Yeah, yeah. And what do we know now about the durability of protection from natural infection? So I, I, the reason I wore this scarf today, and it just reminds me, I, each of these scarves means something. I bought this in South Africa um, when I was in Johannesburg for uh, one of our meetings um, and from a great store called Poetry there. So what I've learned from South Africa, because they have been very good about um, originally doing antibody studies, and they showed with their original surge that between 30 and 50% of the population was infected with that original surge. Exactly four to five months later, they had the beta surge. Four to five months later, they had the delta surge. Four to five months later, they had the Omicron surge. And I was waiting because it should have been just now that they have their next surge because we're four to five months later after a law and they're having another surge. So we have clear population-based evidence that um, these, this virus does not induce prolonged um, protection against reinfection. And as long as you have reinfection and silent spread, it will eventually get to the vulnerable Americans in the community. Now we have the tools to ensure Americans can now start to survive and then thrive. But let's get to the place where Americans survive. We're not there yet because yeah. it's okay to have tools on a shelf. You've got to make sure that they're accessible and that everybody can get them. So four to five months is probably the best we can hope for at this point. And that's not enough, obviously. Um, you know, we recently surpassed the 1 million mark in deaths in the U.S. Something that's an, uh, <coughs> excuse me, an undercount, although uh, one of the questions was, have, have we been overcounting? So I'm curious about that. But uh, if you can answer that, and also if we had addressed the virus as effectively as possible, as early as possible, with, with the tools that we really had at those times, how, what do you think the death count would be? How many lives would have been saved from that? So that's a that's a difficult question because it has to do with how quickly you can evaluate and make therapeutics available. And I, I still think we were we were too slow on our therapeutics. I think we're too slow right now ensuring access. Putting them in even a thousand pharmacies is not enough to reach the central rural areas of America. So I think I think the best illustration to date right now is how countries use their lessons to improve with each surge. So if you look at the UK, um, and I, I take people back for a moment, remember when everybody was saying on the TV that Delta is milder and Omicron is milder because they were looking at the UK's hospitalizations and deaths. Mm -hmm. So I ask everybody to go out there, go on Worldometer or go in our world and data and look at the UK with each of the surges. Surge in cases, much less hospitalizations and deaths than the United States, both with the Delta surge and the Omicron surge. Why is that? Well, well one thing that they're doing very differently 
up until recently, they were testing at about four times the rate of the United States. And anybody could walk to their local pharmacy and get a test. And they were good about informing the public that if you wanna go see grandma or your great aunt with metastatic breast cancer, or your um, very ill um, 40 or 50 year old friend, to test before you go uh, or mask in their presence. And I think mm -hmm. they did have a much lower case fatality rate with Delta and Omicron than we did, but we lost, I mean, let's be very clear. We lost nearly 240,000 Americans in this past winter surge. I don't think that that's an acceptable amount and that is with vaccines. And before everybody said, oh, it's the unvaccinated, it isn't, it mm -hmm. isn't. People over 70 that are vaccinated and people over 70 that are vaccinated and boosted are dying. Mm -hmm. And we need to figure out why and put into place the safety net and the layered protection so that doesn't happen. Vaccines are great, but they're not perfect. Yes, we should all be immunized. Yes, we should all be boosted. For the younger people thinking about long COVID, that's why they probably should be vaccinated and boosted because it looks like the risk to long COVID is less. What I don't know and what I can't tell people is if you keep getting reinfected, what happens with those late stage cardiovascular or brain findings? So, I mean, mm -hmm. we don't know everything about this virus. So I wouldn't, I'm never cavalier about this. We have 14 people in our immediate family that I have been that are in this area of Washington, DC. None of us have gotten COVID. We all work, but we don't get it because we are very much about layered protection and risk mitigation. There's a way to do it if you really don't want to get infected, but it takes really having the data, which I provide to the family. Great. I want to ask a little bit more about that, but first, just getting back to the numbers, a million deaths. Is that the right number? Is it too low, too high? So I think early on, there were significant undercounts um, because um, we do not have a good death reporting system. Um, I, I could see that very early on in the CDC. It's in the book about fatal assumptions that CEA made um, relevant to case fatality rates. Our reporting is horrendous when it comes to fatalities. It's often four or five weeks late. Um, and so our data is not good when it comes to death reporting. So early on, I think it was undercounted. Um, I think now it's probably by and large counted, but I worry that as people say that we're in a new phase of the pandemic, I don't know where the evidence is for that. Do we think there's not going to be another surge? I don't think that's true. We had a huge winter surge, despite what people should be looking at is the hospitalization, hospitalization rates of people over 70. They're over 90% vaccinated. Many are boosted. If we're still having them hospitalized, then we're not getting therapeutics to them quick enough, which means we're not testing them fast enough. I mean, you can see what the gaps are. Each of those ga gaps have to be addressed. You just can't say we're gonna move into test and treat and then not ensure that every American has access to that. And it's, everything needs to be GPS mapped. We, we should be putting that, Asper has that map up, but I ask you to go to that map. There are hundreds of square miles without access to pharmacies. I mean, we there's a way to get tests to them and telemedicine and FedEx them the Paxlovid. There's a way to do all of this. We're just not utilizing the full technology space of the United States. Mm -hmm.
So when uh, Tony Fauci recently said we've kind of moved to the endemic phase, do you, what do you think of that comment? Do you think that was accurate? You know, I think what this is, ex I take you back yeah. to May of 2021. Um, we had had a very severe winter surge. We had that small alpha variant, isolated surge that went into just the Northeast, a little bit into Florida and the upper Midwest. That's it. And everybody looked at that and said, oh, we've arrived. Don't mm -hmm. wear your mask. You're vaccinated. Everything is safe. Don't worry. You gather, do anything that you want. And then we had the predictable summer surge of 2021. And so I, I ask people to not overinterpret where we are. We had a law last year. We had a law in 2020 in May. We're going to have a law in 20. We had a law in 2021. We have a law now that will happen. <laughs> it is predictable, but we should not use that law to say it's never coming back. We don't have to worry anymore. Instead, we should be using it right now to ensure that every Southern state every rural parish of Louisiana, every rural area, Mississippi, Alabama, Southern Arkansas, Southern Oklahoma, rural Texas has what they need to ensure their residents when they see test positivity rise for those at most at risk can get tested immediate access to antivirals and mm -hmm. if needed immediate access to Evo Shield, which we know there are Americans that don't make any antibody to the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have a little now, how concerned are you about a summer surge probably in the South and then a fall winter surge further North? I remain deeply concerned because we're not explaining to America how and why these vaccines are not 100% effective. That doesn't mean they're not effective. They're just not 100% effective. Um, we encourage people to gather in Thanksgiving and Christmas, um, like saying, if you're all vaccinated, it's safe. I can tell you that there were vaccinated people spreading the virus at Thanksgiving dinner to their elderly grandparents and it killed them. I mean, we don't need to be doing that. We know better than that. And I think we have to be that frank and understand what these vaccines can do and not do, what our therapeutics can do and not do. I, I, I can't even believe we're in this situation. It's like saying to a diabetic, you know what? Don't worry, just take your insulin. Don't measure your glucose. Don't worry what your A1C level is. We're just gonna kind of, you just, we're just going to pretend it's all going to be fine. We're going to be, in, we're just going to think your glucose is under control rather mm -hmm. than measuring your glucose being under control. We have the technology to do all of that and we just need to use it. And it, there are laws. There's times when you don't have to take mitigation as seriously. And then there's that six to eight to 10 week period in certain areas of the country where you need to take it seriously. If you're going to protect grandma, your aunt with breast cancer, your Down syndrome cousin, there's ways to do this and ensure that Americans can survive. I don't think we are utilizing all of the tools so that we can survive. And then we can talk about thriving despite COVID. I think we can get there, but changing the name of where we are in the pandemic is not going to stop a surge. Yeah, yeah. 
you mentioned, you know, I got sort of three pillars that stop, and they're not new, but if you could repeat them just so we're clear on what, where you stand on this. Well, number one is data being publicly available and transparent so that anybody at any time. Now, the HHS community profile that we got up in December of 2020 is helpful, but it needs to be much more granular and it may must include where to get your therapeutics and where to get tests. So when you see test positivity rising in your county, or if you're traveling and going to a county where test positivity is rising, and it happens in sequence, usually 5 to 12-year-olds, 12, 12 to 17-year-olds, 17, 17 to 25-year-olds, and it gets into the parents, and then it gets to the grandparents. So that gives you an opportunity to stop that transmission before it gets to your great aunt or your grandmother or your grandfather. It is all possible. What you need to do when you see that happening, if you have vulnerable individuals in your household, it comes down to testing and masking. Um, and it's it's really that, that simple. I think um, there's much more technology now available for indoor spaces and improving the ability to actively kill the virus. And I think people who have vulnerable households should take, should actually look into that and what they need to do. Um, and Hopefully Medicare and Medicaid will make that available to people who have renal disease, significant cardiovascular disease, so they're not socially isolated. The answer cannot be to socially isolate grandma. The answer needs to be to use these tools of data, testing, masking, antivirals, and vaccines in combination to ensure they're protected during the surge. Thanks. Um how concerned should we be about variants, both the ones we know of and yet to come? Okay, so I'm just gonna say this about something that everybody knows about. Um, HIV is an RNA virus. Fortunately, um, it's not as contagious and it's transmitted in a different way, but we still have that RNA virus with us and we still don't have an effective, a perfectly effective vaccine developed. We do have good treatment. But that virus continues to mutate. It mutates away from the treatments you're taking. It mutates continuously. This virus, this coronavirus is going to do the same thing. It does it by accident. You know, it's, it's making millions of copies. It's making mistakes. But every now and again, that mistake produces a more infectious variant, which you see today. And that's, you know, I... All of these variants, everybody goes, oh my gosh, it's more infectious than the last one. Of course it is, or you wouldn't see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is really just common sense. Okay, so these variants are going to continue. Every variant that you can see has a competitive advantage over the last variant. It can run faster. So every new variant is by definition going to be more infectious as it overcomes um, or immune invasive. And, and I think that's what I worry about. Right now, we do have some monoclonals that still work against these evolving variants. We have EvoShield, which is a depot, which you can, which we think will last for six months, particularly in the elderly. That's a good tool. We have antivirals. We should be continuing to work on cocktails of antivirals to make sure that they don't escape the ability to or develop resistance to those particular mm -hmm. antivirals. But all of this has to be taken into the context of 
let's just co use common sense. We're going to have more variants because we have now a high background of prior infection, but we know this virus can invade and, and reinfect, but cause less symptoms. Now, if we were a really healthy population, then you could say, okay, we're gonna get it. We have enough continuous low-grade infections that people will be infectious for shorter periods of time and maybe won't infect grandma and grandpa. But we have 35 million Americans over 70 and another seven or 8 million that are immunosuppressed. That's 42 million Americans. That's almost 15% of our society that may be still significant vulnerabilities to this virus. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, your background was in international health. Uh, you... Um... I've already referenced several other countries. I'm wondering, from your look at the world, has there been a country that you particularly respect in terms of its ability to successfully uh, contain the virus or mitigate against it? You know, I, I've been very impressed um, by the UK up until they started dismantling their testing sites, which I think they better put back. But mm -hmm. the reason I've been excited about what the UK has been doing is they've been making data transparent and available to the public. They've stayed on message of um, look at the data, use the data to guide you and your family. And here's all the tools you need and how to get them. And they've been able to drive down their fatalities. Mm -hmm. And we have not been able to. So we need to learn from them. Uh, we, they had more fatalities in the first and second surge than we did. They figured it out and they've had less fatalities in the third and fourth surge than we had. So this is when people on the in the press say, oh, we're not worried that there'll be so many hospitalizations this time because they're less in Europe. We're not Europe. We are heavier. We mm. are just as old, but we have many more comorbidities than Europe. So we have to do better with our tools and the UK has been doing in order to decrease our case fatality rates. Do not be misled. I've heard people now saying, well, you know, our case fatality rate is like 0.3. Mm -hmm. That's 0.3 for the entire American population. That's the tyranny of averages that hides the incredibly high death rate in those over 70 when you put in all the 20-somethings and 30-somethings and 40-somethings and 50-somethings. It lowers the overall rate, but the case, what everybody should be looking at is the case fatality rate in those over 70, and we should be focused on every single hospitalization and deaths is a failure of our system and mm -hmm. figuring out how to correct that. What's the, what is the case fatality rate for people over 70? So originally it was 30%. Um, and that was the first surge. It, we got it down to about 10% in the summer surge of 2020 and down to about 5% in the winter surge of, um, of 2020 that went into 2021. Um, I don't have access to that disaggregated data on that level any longer, so I can't tell you what precisely it is, but I imagine it's still in the 2 to 3% range. It's mm -hmm. not 0.3. Yeah, yeah, much higher. Order of magnitude difference. Um, certainly something that we, I think, all take away, and certainly everybody in the public health world uh, is dismayed at how politicized 
this, all the public health issues came in this. And you were in the center of us here, an expert. You could consult with us on how to, how to politicize a, a public health crisis. But did you also get any insights on how to avoid uh, politicizing the next public health crisis? Yeah, and I, I hate to be so simplistic, but to me, it comes down to providing the com complete information on what is happening. Um, if people saw how small the data sets that the CDC was using to put out their policies and how late they are behind putting out those policies, I and mean, we're getting the data from the January deaths the end of April, beginning of May, when no one, I mean, you can't do anything about it then. Mm -hmm. So data has to be constantly available. And then any recommendations that are made from a public health standpoint at this point should have all the data behind it supporting that. And I mean that at the federal level, but also at the state and local level, mm -hmm. so that the communities understand why they're being asked to do certain things or why they're asking families to assess their risk and understand how to mitigate that risk. Not all families are the same. Mm -hmm. I have a different risk factor and it's why we're so, why we are so compulsive in our mitigation, it's because I've got three grandchildren under five for which I am a care provider, um, not as, all the time. <laughs> and to my 93-year-old mother. So my household looks different than your household. But everybody should know what their risk is of the family members that are in their household. So when you see the virus coming, you can do the right things. That's how we ensure Americans survive. There are certain states that I believe um, across the South, um, when I was out, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, who I thought were really in touch with their population and making this into a population um, really communicated why they were asking. Same with West Virginia, North Dakota, not just saying you got to do this, but saying this is why I think it's important we do this together. Um, and here's the data that supports it. And this is what, and then when they get through that surge, talk about how many lives were saved by their actions so that people can see that their sacrifices that they made through those periods were important in, in keeping North Dakotans and West Virginians and Louisianans alive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you left about, you left office about 15 months ago. And since then, the Biden administration, of course, came in with her eyes wide open about the virus. What do you think the Biden administration has done best and worst in terms of combating the coronavirus? Well, first, I think they put together a really comprehensive plan. Um, and I, that plan that they put out in July of 2020, I read it multiple times. I made sure that we were doing as many of those things that we could um, in the circumstances that we were in, um, we really, and that's why I was out in the state saying, this is what we should be doing. Uh, the trouble is when they came in, I think they believed that the vaccines were going to protect against infection. Mm -hmm. So they put all of their eggs in the vaccine basket. Testing fell to an all-time low. We were testing about 1.4, this is just PCR, 1 1.3, 1 1.4 Americans a day. It fell to under 300,000. 
Um, we were caught off guard then because of that for the summer surge. The summer surge was incredibly deadly. It was deadly not because the vaccination. It's not deadly solely because the vaccination rates were lower in the South. It is an illustration of our rural health care, which is horrendous. Um, and I think by making it into, I think that, that they were part of that politicization of making it into a, how people voted rather than their access to health care. And I think that further politicized the situations and pushed people to the side. When you say to people, talk to your family doctor about um, getting a vaccine, that shows you have no idea what's happened in rural America. There is no primary care doctors in rural America. They're getting their health care by driving three or four hours to an emergency room in a major metropolitan area. So, or they're driving to Walmart to get their eye care. So they're... You know, don't say things that don't apply to all Americans. Fix it so it does. Um, and so I think there's still huge gaps in our response. I think we have to go back to the fundamentals. But I, I, my fundamental is trust the American people to make good decisions. And they'll make good decisions if you show them all the information that they need to make those decisions. They're used to going on Amazon and comparing all the technical capacities and the cost of different products. Mm -hmm. They will understand this data. Do not dummy it down for them. Do not give them partial information. It breaks trust. I know that you were dismayed at the lack of data when you arrived, but it was also interesting that uh, people like Seema Verma could actually make some data collection happen <laughs> in a remarkably fast period of time. So should that make us optimistic that we can make some of these changes in our data collection systems if, we're, if we have the will to do so? Brilliant question. And absolutely. Everybody told me, oh, you'll never get the data from the hospitals. I, I said, Seema, I need all the data from 100% of the 6,000 hospitals. And my data team, five people, and Seema went out. We had calls with the hospital associations. A week later, we were getting 93% reporting. We got up to about 97% daily reporting. Wow. I, the private sector responded don't pretend that they're going to say no. Ask them. I'm telling you, they'll say yes. You should be able to get data right now. We should have data from every clinic, every hospital, every minute there, no matter what it is, on every community-acquired infectious disease. And in order to be paid for that visit, you need to definitively diagnose this with a laboratory diagnosis. We cannot tell parents we think it's RSV or we think it's flu or we think it's COVID. No, everybody at this point in this 21st century needs a definitive laboratory diagnosis. If you link it to payment, it will happen. And the, the laboratories and the clinics around this United States would be willing to report all of their community-acquired infectious disease in real time. There are private sector data collectors like Palantir and others that can set up these databases, strip out all of the personal identifiers so no one has, put it all up as age bands, which we do in Africa, so no one can say that's Jenny down the street because you wouldn't know. It's just 50 to 60-year-olds or 55 to 60-year-olds. So there's a way to do this, but you need to have a will. And I can tell you the private sector will respond. They responded to every one of my requests. That's great. You know, um, we obviously have a lot more trouble she's like preventing uh, disease, uh, whether it's the national level or the personal level. 
than we do of, of, you know, to treat it once we have it. Why do you think that is a part of human nature? And can we do anything about that? You know, we can. And, you know, to my mind, that's what CDC should be. Um, CDC should be focused on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, they focus very much on control. They need to move in aggressively into prevention and hold themselves accountable, working down at the county and state level to decrease the childhood obesity. If you decrease childhood obesity, you'll decrease adult obesity, you'll decrease hypertension and diabetes, and Americans will thrive. But as a federal, as an American people, we need to say to CDC, this is your job now. This is what you need to be doing. Um, and then have them report month by month, quarter by quarter on the progress that they're making using comprehensive data. Um, we cannot just measure things every five years like is being done now. We do a survey and decide how many diabetics and hypertensive and obese people we have in the United States. You can't look at progress that way and you can't know what's working and not working. Um, every single business will tell you they don't just look at how many cappuccinos are sold every three years. They look at how many cappuccinos they're selling every three hours. I mean, it's in this day and age, we need to use technology to improve the health of America. It is possible. If we could turn around a pandemic of HIV in sub-Saharan Africa to rates not seen since 1990, it is possible to do it in this country. But we have to admit that the tribal nations are underserved. And they have to really work with them at the community level rather than just giving money to the Indian Health Service. We need to be working with rural counties across this country to improve their health care. We know what the problems are. Now we have to work on finding the solutions. They're out there. I saw them state by state. And so I wanted this book to be a book of hope. I put an appendix in there to say to our legislators, both local legislation, state legislations, and our national Congress to get on it, force yeah. people to make these changes. Well, and you have a lot of a lot of very specific uh, recommendations for what we could do differently, which I thought was very helpful. You mentioned uh, earlier that when you took the White House job, you knew it would be the end of your civil service career. And while you were there, you were undermined by some presidential tweets. You were lambasted by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. You really were able to attract bipartisan criticism along the way. And uh, when your time was coming to a close, the White House, uh, you're in the book, um, this outsider would soon be lumped in with all the Trump insiders. You knew that no matter how you felt about things, you were going to be positioned as part of the Trump team. That sounds like a tough year. <laughs> and I know you say you do it over again, which is great. But I'm curious about how did your incredibly intense time in the White House, how did it change you? You know, we all decide in our lives, you know, how we're going to use the days that are given us. Um, and for some reason, I have been compelled to use data to really ensure that people's lives are better. Um, and I've had amazing opportunities to do that. I've learned a tremendous amount. Um, that's why I said I would do it again. I brought a unique voice to that task force, um, and I think I had a great impact on getting these databases up and running um, that even the Biden administration is using to today. But I also knew that it, as polarizing as President Trump was throughout his presidency, 
even a civil servant. Um, and this is why people often say to me, why didn't you quit? Well, how can you quit when you know that you're needed? Um, you can't. It, you can, it could do, it would be great for your reputation. I mean, you can go out there and say, I quit. And all the news networks would have carried it for 30 seconds. And then you would have had no impact on what was needed to be done inside that White House. And, you know, I've worked overseas in very difficult situation advocating for those whose voices are silenced by their government. And I've just seen that that is my role. For some reason, I can see things in the data and communicate it in a way that changes presidents and prime ministers' minds. Not always and not always permanently, as is evident. But I think um, what's discouraging to me is people think that these things don't have an impact, but I can tell you people will think twice being a civil servant and going into any White House. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a loss to the country. And so we shouldn't be so disposing of um, our civil service workforce. Um, and we should be encouraging people to bring the talents that they have um, to crisis situations. Yeah, yeah. And we should also be cautious about painting civil service with the same brush as the administrations they join, given what they've done in the past. Well, this has really been wonderful. We only have time for one more question. And I'm gonna use moderator's privilege and ask it to you. And it's what is the most important thing or a few things the US can do to prevent the next virus that comes along from causing a pandemic? Get up these databases and make sure we're tracking down to the community level, all community acquired infectious diseases. Because if you know what you have, you'll, be, you'll have the capacity to diagnose new things. Um, and you'll have all the platforms up and running and all of the databases available to really understand what infectious diseases you have. And when you see something that's not measured in those current assays, you'll know that you have a new virus or a new bacteria. Um, and so it's about creating a system for the long run. Um, I think that same system could be utilized to ensure and improve the health of Americans, but that's something we can all work towards and agree upon. But as an emergency, all infectious diseases that are community acquired should be diagnosed laboratorily and tracked. And should that be through the CDC or somewhere else in HHS or the administration? Where should that go? I think it should be a public-private partnership where it's established at the community level so that there's trust um, and that the state, so that the communities own the data, the states can see the data, the CDC can see, this, see the data. The CDC's role is to look across the country. That's their value add, but that should not keep the individual states from having the data that they need in real time to support their own citizens. Wonderful. Well, thank you. I wish we could go on longer, but we are running out of time. So I want to thank Dr. Deborah Burks for a wonderful uh, discussion here today. I want to encourage all of our viewers to purchase her new book, Silent Invasion. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. The, the Untold Story of the Trump Administration, COVID-19, and Preventing the Next Pandemic Before It's Too Late. I have read it and I would recommend it. So thank you, Dr. Burks. Thanks to all of you who are listening. I'm Mark Sitter. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thanks to all. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.